My name is Amanda Newland Davis, and I run Oklahoma Cold Cases along with my partner Jen. At Oklahoma Cold Cases, we try to shine light on the cases of the missing, murdered, and unidentified that otherwise don't get much media attention. For the last four years, we've existed solely on Facebook, sharing the posts of the missing, murdered, and unidentified of Oklahoma. But this past year, we've branched out and started a database in which we list all of the names of every cold case that is in Oklahoma that we are currently aware of. You can find us at oklahomacoldcases.org. I would also like to take a minute to let you know about our podcast, which is called The Throwaways. It is about the Lawton serial killer, which is a series of unsolved killings considered to be by the same killer, which took place roughly between 1999 and 2003 in Lawton, Oklahoma. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. So this week we are talking about Debbie Carter, who was murdered two years before our previous case in the same town, same town, same prosecutors, same police. You'll learn this intimately over the next however many minutes this is. (laughs) Yes. Buckle up. This one's frustrating. So those of you who are not from Ada, and don't know how big or small Ada is. So Ada is eight about 18,000 people, and it only runs about 16 square miles, which in comparison uh, to like Tulsa, where I am, Tulsa is 198 square miles. So this is a very small town. So everything is very compact, and everybody sees and knows everybody. So we just wanted to tell you, those of you who have no idea what an ada is (laughs) (laughs) december 7th 1982 debbie carter was a 21 year old woman living in ada oklahoma whose rape and murder in 1982 sparked a decades-long search for justice including two imprisonments of innocent men ron williamson and dennis fritz carter was raped sodomized with a ketchup bottle and strangled to death you can read the details of her murder in Gore versus State Finding. She worked at a nightclub called the Coach Light. She lived by herself near the local university, which was in the middle of Ada, is in the middle of Ada, still there. She was described as pretty, athletic, popular, and very independent. She had been at work on the night of December 7th, and the Coach Light wasn't very busy, so she asked if she could take off, and her boss obliged. She sat at a table with some friends and was asked to dance by a man named Glenn Gore. They got in some kind of argument, and she stopped dancing and walked off. And since they were so slow, they closed the bar around midnight 30. Remember this time, 12.30. Debbie's friends wanted to continue drinking, and Debbie had mentioned she'd feel safer if someone would come stay the night with her, but they went to Gina Vieta's house. That's where they all went drinking. Tell them where the coach light was. What I have heard is that the coach light 
something i forget what it was called lucky's raging planet raging planet yes thank you <laughs> let me just throw them all out there <laughs> so it was a lot of you may know where the raging planet was because i know that like my husband used to go to the raging planet but if you don't <laughs> in today's day and age it would be where um the laser zone is now which is on the edge of town west side like literally very edge of town so there you go for people who aren't around don't know anything about ada the coach light would have been what maybe five miles from debbie's house oh yeah i mean ada is pretty dang small and she was smack dab in the middle of ada yeah so. it just take it takes really no time to get from point a to point b so she should have gone with her friends but but if he threatened her in some way, because we don't know the dialogue, we don't know what the problems were, it was all so, that was kind of secretive, so maybe she just wanted to go home and make sure he didn't break in or set fire to the place or something. Now, previously, Debbie and her, one of her friends had already tried to file a report on Glengore. Debbie's windshield wipers had been stolen, and she and her friend, like, she had her friend drive her to Glengore's house to confront him about it. Which was in Fitztown. So anyway, she said she was hungry and tired and she just wanted to go home. Several people saw her talking to Gore by her car in the parking lot. He had ridden to the coach lot with Ron West after running into him at another bar and asking for a ride. They were at Harold's earlier. And I don't know where that is. Me either. When the bar closed, when the coach lot closed, they went into town and ate breakfast. And he asked Ron to take him to his mother's house on Oak Street, which is, I mean... Oh, Oak Street's in the middle of town. Well, it's not that far from the coach light, but... His mother didn't even live on Oak Street. She lived across town. But he got out of the car saying he was going to walk the rest of the way. And that happened to be about a mile from Debbie's apartment. That night, Debbie made two phone calls to her friends. One was at 2.30 in the morning asking Gina to come pick her up because she had a visitor who was making her uncomfortable. Gina asked who, and the conversation was cut short by what sounded like a struggle over use of the phone. Uh, the second time, as Gina was hurrying out the door to go check on her friend, the phone rang again, and it was Debbie again. She was saying everything was fine and not to come, and Gina asked who it was once again, and Debbie didn't disclose a name. She asked Gina to call and wake her up the next day, and Gina thought that was weird because she never asked her to do that. She was still going to go. But then she second guessed herself. You know, she was like, what if she's got a guy over there? I don't want to make it awkward. I don't, you know, I'm just going to go to bed. Mm -hmm. To this, we would like to tell you to not force your instinct to go check on your friend anyway, or call the cops or call a friend who might be sober. Like maybe, maybe trekking across town when you've been drinking for four or five hours isn't the brightest idea. Let's not do that. But yeah. find a way to check on your friend. If something seems off, it probably is. Um, anyway, the next day, Debbie's friend and former classmate was in town from Shawnee, which is, what did we decide? About 45 minutes north of Ada? Yeah. And she went by Debbie's house around 11 that morning to say hi. And she got upstairs to the porch and was beep bopping along. And then she saw broken glass. Uh, Debbie lived in a garage apartment, and so you'd have to go upstairs to get to her front door. So that's where she saw the broken glass, and she thought maybe Debbie had locked her keys inside and had to break out a window pane kind of thing. But she heard the radio inside, and she opened the door, 
The apartment was an absolute mess. She called and called for Debbie and Debbie didn't answer. She'd been there before. So she knew to go to Debbie, where Debbie's room was. And when she went in there, she saw Debbie's foot and she saw that Debbie was nude face down on the ground with something written on her back. She was horrified and thought the attacker could still be there, which is brilliant. Donna, well done. Get out mm-hmm. of there. If you go to your home and the door is partially open, don't go don't in there. Go Do not go in the room. Don't go in the house. If anything is weird or out of place, get out. Call the police. They'll clear the house. So anyways, she left to call Debbie's mom from a nearby gas station. Debbie's mother, Peggy Stillwell, ran out to her car, but her battery was dead. The universe works in weird ways. There are some things you just absolutely shouldn't see and could never unsee. So maybe it was just happenstance that her car yeah. couldn't I'm go. I'm glad that she didn't see that. Yeah, I know. Because this, this poor woman, oh, the heartbreak for her is, mm-hmm. it hurts me. Um, she called her ex-husband, Charlie, and there was no answer. She called Carol Edwards, who either lived across the street or down the street from Debbie. But she asked her to go check on Debbie. She said something was very wrong. She waited for what seemed like forever, and she called Charlie again. This time he answered. And so she told she told him what was going on. He headed over there. Carol went inside Debbie's house, and she saw the body. And then Charlie got there, and he saw Debbie, and he kind of held her and was hoping for some sign of life. Like you do, you know? Those, yeah. those moments when life is right there on the edge and it seems so fragile and it's like maybe maybe this isn't real you know maybe you can come back i don't know yeah um carol and donna were waiting outside on the porch crying and they said they heard him say goodbye and apologize for what happened to her Mm. detective dennis smith of the ada police that breaks my heart too like i just have to push on through these details because it makes my nose sting um detective dennis smith of the ada police department arrived after the paramedics police and even a couple prosecutors they were everybody was already there so you can imagine he went upstairs and started assessing the crime scene uh there were three messages in the apartment the first on the wall written in nail polish jim smith next will die and we find that wording very bizarre like last week whenever you talked about a certain turn of phrase like i wouldn't say raven rollins next will die yeah. Is that how you talk? Like, that's yeah. just weird. Um, the second one was written on the table with ketchup. Don't look for us or else. Four was spelled F-O-R-E. Else was spelled E-A-L-S-E. So there's a certain amount of illiteracy there that's also important to note. Because normal adult people know how to spell don't look for us or else. Yeah. And... Us is also kind of fascinating, like implicating that it's more than one person. Um, the third message was written on Debbie's back in ketchup, and it was just a name, and it said Duke Graham. And Graham is kind of a common name. Um, the last name is usually G-R-A-H-A-M, especially the Grahams that are in Ada. So mm-hmm. the fact that you wrote Graham, like... G-R-A-M. The coroner later found a message on... Uh, Debbie's chest and it said die and I'm not sure if that was nail polish if it was ketchup if it was scratched on her it was ketchup ketchup also ketchup Mm -hmm. a struggle was very apparent there were cushions on the floor furniture was moved sheets blankets um the bed was moved like the mattress all of her clothes were off the hangers which I find that strange like I want to add to this just uh when the medical examiner examined her later 
He found bruising in her vagina. Also, she had the presence of sperm in her anus and her vagina. She had a collapsed lung. She had a dilated heart. She had head trauma and bruises on her arms and sides and a washcloth stuffed in her mouth. The ketchup bottle was next to her body and the the lid was in her. That's what I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. During the investigation of the crime scene, according to the court records, there was also a shampoo bottle with the lid missing, and apparently the lid was not found. Also, during the autopsy report, they found, but there were bruises and scrapes on her face, her forehead above her right eye, along her right cheek, along the left side of her mouth, under her chin, on the back of her neck, and there were also bruises and bite marks found inside her mouth and on her tongue. A narrow ligature mark found around her neck, fresh bruises on her chest, arms, hips, knees, on the inside and outside of her thighs, around her vaginal area. Sperm was also found not only in the vagina and rectum, but also around the vagina and rectum, uh, that actually she survived all of that. And her death was actually by asphyxiation from the ligature strangulation. Absolutely nothing appeared to be in place in her apartment. Uh, He tracked down all the, Dennis Smith is who we're talking about. He tracked down all the hairs he could and he bagged them up, labeling where he found each one. Like they combed her pubes and all that later on and got more hairs. But under her body was an electrical cord and a Western belt with Debbie carved in the middle of it. Um, she was making tater tots when she got home, and they were still out. Hence, probably the ketchup. Exactly. There is definitely no probably to that. Like, she was going to enjoy her freaking tater tots with some ketchup and just have a nice, peaceful evening and go to bed. Mm-hmm. And you and I have both lived on our own and single, and we have both been bartenders in that town. Mm-hmm. And I know for a fact that you've seen the many ways a bottle can be used as a weapon. Mm -hmm. Maybe she was going to use it on her assailant and he took it from her. Or maybe just grabbed whatever he saw when he realized she was going to put up a fight. Because Mm -hmm. she's, she's, so she's my height and weighs 130 pounds. So like what, five, six? Eight. Well, her mom even said in an interview that Debbie had told her at one point, um, because her mom, Peggy, was worried about her working at a place like that. And she said, Mom, don't worry. She said, basically, she said, if I have nails and hands and feet, you best bet that I'm going to put up a fight. Yes. There was a bloody handprint, a palm print, like the bottom part of your palm on the wall, and they cut that out for evidence. They dusted everything for fingerprints, including her car. So the names in the messages. First of all, one name was spelled wrong, Duke Graham. So how much of a vendetta do you really have against this person to try and implicate them in some horrible thing that you've done? Duke Graham and Jim Smith... Remember, Jim Smith next will die. We're both well-known individuals in Ada, and for two different reasons. Graham owned his own nightclub, and Smith is described as a thug and a small-time criminal. Most of the people that we bring up are small-time criminals. They've got DUIs, PIs, fraudulent charges, you know, yeah, assault. So Dennis Smith 
An OSBI agent, Gary Rogers, sat down with Debbie's family, and they gathered every name they possibly could, anybody who was remotely significant in Debbie's life. They called them all to come down to the police department and provide DNA samples and prints. Nobody refused. Everybody obliged. No problem. Gore, he just basically pretended like he didn't know anything was happening. And someone was like, hey, they're asking everybody to go down and give prints. And so he goes. Um, He gave a statement about going to school with Debbie and that he'd seen her at the coach light and that he left with Ron West around 1.15. Hmm. That's strange. Because that was an hour after they closed-ish. Yeah. You know, 45 minutes. So he left with Ron West around 1.15 and that he'd never been to Debbie's apartment. Later, he would claim that he saw a man named Ron Williamson there pestering Debbie. Absolutely nobody verified that version. People who were at the coach light don't recall seeing him, and some were adamant that he wasn't there at all. He apparently wasn't hard to miss. <laughs> he was kind, oh, kind yeah. of a loud mouth. Like, yeah. if he was there, everyone in the damn building knew he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, Gore was not fingerprinted, nor was any DNA collected. Perhaps it was the smoke show of his statement, or they were busy with the process of checking all these other people, and his processing slipped through the cracks but for whatever reason he was missed on that frontier it would be three and a half years before they ever got any of those things on file on him the jim smith mentioned in the messages in debbie's apartment was already serving time elsewhere but another guy robert jean Dethridge, why they were interviewing him at all i don't know it's fairly, fairly easy to put the crooked pieces together as the story unfolds anyways he shared a cell with ron williamson Mm-hmm. who was locked up for probably public intox or a DUI or something. They had to be separated because they kept fighting. Oh, my gosh. He alleges that when Debbie's murder was mentioned, that Ron would get irate. And this was apparently the first time Ron's name was brought up in connection to any of this, allegedly. Okay. Um, Ron was an MLB draft pick and signed with the Oakland A's in 1971. And I quote, this is John Grisham's words right here, but the baseball was gone and the police now knew him as an unemployed guitar picker who lived with his mother, drank too much, and acted strange. Debbie's Aunt Glenna received an anonymous call where a male voice said, Debbie's dead and next you will die. By walking a few steps from his garage apartment, Ron Williamson's garage apartment, the back alley, he could actually see Debbie's apartment. And by walking a few steps down his mother's driveway, like this, this garage apartment was at his mother's house. So by walking a few steps down his mother's driveway, he could see Glenna's house. Bill Peterson heard about the call to Glenna and they both agreed that Ron was probably the caller and the killer. But why? Yeah. Just, just because. Uh, He was right there in the middle, the weird man with no job and strange hours, just watching the neighborhood around him. And Uh. some people just absolutely cannot handle anyone who's different from them, and they assume the worst. Ron was trying to get into a school or a Votech to be a coach, and he was at East Central and got financial aid. He showed up to get his money, and the check was made out to Ron and an officer at the school. And he forged the officer's name and got his money. He was there with a couple buddies. Obviously, we're not using this for textbooks, okay? (laughs) 
Nancy Carson witnessed the forgery and called her husband Rick, who was an officer and a schoolmate of Ron's. An official from the college knew Ron's family. Welcome to Ada. Who was a devout Christian family, by the way. They went to Ron, Ron's mother's beauty shop and told her if she would reimburse the school $300, no criminal charges would be pursued. So she did. And the following day, Ron was arrested for uttering a forged instrument, a felony that carried a maximum prison sentence of eight years. He was placed in the Pontotoc County Jail and nobody could help him. So from what I understand, this mother was a saint, a precious woman, a very honest woman. Everybody loved her. Mm -hmm. And she just, if she were to tell you something, you wouldn't think that she was lying. Because, I mean, she's Pentecostal holiness. So a lie probably means you just go like insta hell, I think. We've We've got Ron in jail. He was like this party boy and stuff, but didn't he hurt himself? So he was like in and out of rehab. I think they said like two or three times because he kept trying to go back and play. And then... Like, he finally realized that this is not going to happen. And he... Yeah. Yeah. He started on his, I guess, coaching path. But anyway. Also, dear people who are not Aiden's, um, his whole family pretty much packed up and moved to Asher so that he could be scouted because he was a stunner. It is... The town is tiny. If you blink, you will miss it. His family was all about, you know, just super supportive of him. All American family, really. All Bible Belt American family. So Dennis Fritz, on Christmas Day, 1975, Dennis was working out of town and his wife, Mary, was murdered by their 17-year-old neighbor. Oh my gosh, I hate this. And and they had a little girl. Uh, Yeah, everything about Dennis's life hurts me. Um, Because he was married to his high school sweetheart. Yeah. And they were kind of living their own little perfect life, too, because he was a teacher and they lived in Tallahena, Oklahoma. His wife, I do believe, was killed in front of their daughter. And I think at one point they said that the daughter moved in with the grandma because he just like couldn't deal with it. Yeah. Um, Two years later, when he was starting to come back out of his shell, he took a teaching job at Kanawha, which is also about 10 minutes north of Ada. Mm-hmm. And he got a rental home in Ada. It was in close proximity to the Williamsons and Debbie also. But mm-hmm. he took later on, he took another job in Noble, but his mother was in Ada taking care of his daughter. So he would commute back and forth and hit up the nightlife in Ada on weekends because he said Noble was boring. Um, he was in Ada one night, bored, and he wanted some beers. So he would also, you know, carouse and pick up the ladies, whatever. Yeah. He wanted a beer, so he went to the store and parked outside in his mother's car was Ron Williamson strumming the guitar. Dennis also played the guitar and just happened to have his with him. They struck up a conversation and they wound up going to Ron's house to jam. So the two became fast friends and drinking buddies, and this would absolutely not play to Fritz's favor. One time, Ron's like, let's go down to Galveston. So they went down to Houston Fritz took a nap in the truck. So Ron's driving Fritz's truck. And yeah. when he woke up, Ron had pitch up, picked up a hitchhiker. And he just what? pointed to the back. He's just all proud of himself. Just <laughs> proud of himself. Like, hey, <laughs> we got another friend. And so Ron and Fritz stopped for beer and food along the way. And they came out of the store to find the hitchhiker had stolen the truck. 
Not only did Ron leave the keys in the truck, he left it running. They find a pizza hut. They guzzle some pitchers of beer. This is, I love this story so much. They end up wandering into a honky tonk, makes friends with a guy in the bar named Cortez. And they party all night and have a great time. And they later ask him if they'd run to the bank so that Dennis Fritz could pull out money to get them home. So while they're in the bank, the police swarmed Cortez. So they're heading out and they're like, whoa, better duck back in here. And they oh just God. wait out. They just, <laughs> they just wait out the situation. They got bus tickets, went back home, and their their friendship cooled off a lot after that. So like, it's like those two hang out one more time and then they stop talking for months because Ron stole Fritz's car. What? Yeah, they went out and then Fritz got a call that some girl wanted him to come over and Ron Williamson's like, well, I'll just invite myself and go with you. Oh As if God. that's not awkward. Like these two want to bang it out and Ron gets all huffy and puffy and he steals Fritz's car. Oh my God. <laughs> He's not a good friend. That's just another story. Anyway, one day he gets called by the police for DNA samples and a polygraph test simply because he ran around with Ron Williamson. He was a science teacher and he was aware of how polygraphs work and he popped a Valium and he failed miserably. <laughs> and they were like, what the hell's going on? And he, he admitted what he did. So they bring Rusty Featherstone brings the machine down from Oklahoma City to Ada because this time he had to go the first time he had to go to Oklahoma City and do the polygraph test. They bring the polygraph machine to Ada. They get down in the basement at the police department. Once again, fails with flying colors. They tried good cop, bad cop. They tried scare tactics. They tried acting like they knew more than they did. And they got nothing out of him because he didn't do anything. And Dennis Smith digs up some old charges and finds a 1973 conviction. Conviction of? For growing marijuana in Durant. Noble calls the school and tells tells them like, oh, he had this charge and he didn't disclose that whenever you hired him. So he gets fired. He's having a rough go of it anyways. And you're going to get him fired yeah. because he hangs out with some guy that got mentioned and you're ruining his life. So Dennis Smith sent the OSB lab, lab the scalp and pubic hairs of Ron and Dennis Fritz. And a couple days later, Ron took a polygraph test that was inconclusive. A week later, an OSBI analyst made a report without qualification, disclaimer, or equivocation that the palm print on the sheetrock sample did not belong to Debbie, Ron, or Fritz. They still tell the Carters. They still tell Debbie's family that Ron is their prime suspect. No one implicated and the victim. That's not any of their palm prints, but Ron's still our guy. In 1984, Ron pleaded guilty to the forgery charge from that check earlier, and he was sentenced to three years in prison. In April of 1984, Denise Haraway was murdered, and the pressure to find Debbie's killer increased dramatically. Ron locked away. Things slowed down to almost a halt while they waited to pin this murder on him when he was released. Mm. After serving 10 months of his three-year sentence, he was sent home under house arrest. He was unmedicated, had no sense of date and time, left one day for cigarettes while he was at home on house arrest, okay? He came back 30 minutes later than he was allowed and was arrested and charged with the felony escape of a penal institution. He basically just went in and out for drunkenness, disruptions during court, not obeying his personal rules, yada, yada, yada. You know what I mean? Like, he's back and forth. We're just in 
jail limbo. He's a frequent flyer. Didn't they at one point uh, have him in Tulsa on a rape charge? I want to say that he was accused in Tulsa of a rape, but that was later dismissed. Yes, I think two times or one was assault and he was dismissed. They were dis- there were two charges and they were both dismissed. While they're still trying to pin this murder on him, his mother remembers that she rented a VCR in a movie and watched it with him that night, the night of Debbie's murder. And she had the rental receipt. She was well known, well respected, a church woman. So she and the lawyer, David Morris, who knows the family well, go to tell Dennis Smith because anyone would believe her. She's earned that respect. You know, Dennis Smith asked if she'd make a video statement. And of course she did. God knows where that went. It was never brought up. There were no reports made. They just completely omit this from everything ever. Jeez. Ron's mother's health started deteriorating while he was in jail. He was taken to see her in the hospital. And she was adamant that she never wanted to see him in handcuffs. And they made him sit in a wheelchair, shackled, couldn't even embrace his mother properly. They at least let him have a blanket to cover the cuffs and chains, but they wouldn't let his sisters stay in there with him. They made them go out into the hallway because they said he was too dangerous. Juanita, the mother, God rest her soul, passed away August 31st, 1985. They made a huge to-do about him attending her funeral. Once again, they wouldn't unshackle him. They made everyone be seated before they brought him in. They weren't even going to let him go until his brother-in-law said that he would he would pay his cousins, they were deputies or former deputies, to guard him during the services. So basically treated him like a ticking time bomb. And in my opinion, John Grisham said it beautifully. Quote, unquote, such precautions were obviously needed for a felon who forged a $300 check. Yeah. Definitely. For sure. That was warranted. They wouldn't uncuff him so he could eat at the reception. So his sisters sat there and had to feed him. At one point, his mental health is assessed. I mean, at 100 points, his mental health is assessed. But at one point, his mental health is assessed. It's determined he doesn't understand the charges, and they put him on a prescription. He levels out. Suddenly, he's good to go again. And when they release him back to prison, he he got sent with a two-week supply of his medications. This was for the check forgery. Like, they were going to put him on trial for the check forgery, and they determined that he was basically not he didn't have the mental capacity for it that right there in itself alone because this all was before debbie is mind-blowing you've already determined that he's not mentally fit to stand trial i just want everyone to remember that later (laughs) once again he's in and out he's on meds off meds things aren't working or he's forgetting to take them. He's manic half the time. And his family, his sisters try to take care of him and take him food. And he's basically, he's got his own place, but he's behaving like a couch drifter. Even though he had a house, he like he'd take a shower outside with garden hose in the backyard. And he's basically just adapted his health to just not feeling welcome or at home anywhere. Um, Aww, that's sad. It's tear everything. Seriously, every my heart breaks in every direction in this story. It's awful. The police still had nothing to go on. The hair samples were microscopically inconsistent between the boys, like the two men, and then the hairs found at the scene. They knew the bloody palm print didn't belong to either of the men nor Debbie. They started to second guess themselves. Or they were just hell-bent on finding the slightest consistencies to say that the palm print is Debbie so the men could possibly have been there. You know, like if it's not, if it's, if it is hers, then who killed her? 
That's what they were searching for so badly. Bill Peterson has her body exhumed. This is four to five years after she passed away to check her palms. For the first and only time in his entire career, the guy checking the prints changed his mind and said it was Debbie's palm print. Then he goes to the media, basically saying this evidence they found pretty much confirmed who did it. A picture of the body when it was exhumed. Number one, the first palm print that they got was literally taken the day after her murder. This palm print, they they brought her up, exhumed her body in 1987. This was four years after she had been buried. Her body was already starting to decompose. So the people in town, the potential jurors, are left to assume they found some damning evidence and that whoever gets put on this trial is definitely who did it. He obtains warrants for the arrest of Dennis Fritz and Ron Williamson. Fritz was living in Kansas City with his mother. He'd all but forgotten about Debbie's murder. They show up with a SWAT team to his mother's house. He lives with his aunt, his mother. He's a teacher. And they show up with a SWAT team. He doesn't even own a gun. So his mother answers the door and they arrest him. He's so confused that he wonders if they've even got the right Dennis Fritz. You know, like he's like, he's wondering how many Dennis Fritzes there could be in Kansas City. So he says over and over that he had nothing to do with it. And they extradited him to Oklahoma. Like Dennis Smith and them went up there as part of this as part of his extraction rick carson sets ron up to be arrested he sees him pushing a lawnmower and he stops to talk to him and ron says i want to work for the city and rick's like okay i'll pick up an app and drop it off at your house later this evening and this ends up being up being a date for his arrest pretty much what the oh yeah he's like oh by the way you guys want to get him you know there's an arrest warrant he'll be at his house because i'm supposed to be dropping off this app to him potentially setting up this man to be put on death row when he thinks you're going to try and help him get a job. Good. Good. So everything went smoothly um, at Ron's arrest. Ron repeatedly said he never met Debbie Carter. He had never been in her apartment. And to the best of his knowledge, he'd never even seen her. He never wavered. He was put in the county jail and it had been at least a month since he'd had any medications. They take him to the interrogation room, start asking questions. He says, oh God, here we go. He says he has a dream about killing Debbie and describes what he's already been told a hundred times, but also throws in that he stabbed her, but she was never stabbed. Mm-hmm. Does this sound familiar? Doesn't it? Gosh, we were just here. He says, if you're going to try me for this, I want David Morris. So they're like, whoa, you know, he's trying to lawyer up. We better stop right here. Why you're suddenly following any kind of protocol, I don't understand. So they called David Morris. He says, stop immediately. The statement was never shown to Ron. Ron never signed anything at this Mm. point. It's like, forget it ever happened or it should have been. Like, just because he's a mental patient doesn't mean he's not intelligent. He's got an IQ of 114. So John Christian goes by to talk to Ron in, in jail. Their families knew each other when they were kids and they used to play together. I think they went to school together or something. But um, Ron had been screaming in the jail and only John could calm him down. Aww. Ron read the dreams of Ada and suggested to John that he may also have a dream confection, confession like Tommy Ward did. He said, if you think that I was the person that killed her, wouldn't I have got some money for my friends and left town? And John Christian, he didn't really think much about it, but he repeated the conversation to a fellow officer. 
Somewhere down the line of this telephone game of them repeating all this, it lands on the ears of Gary Rogers, who, of course, saw an opportunity and had Christian write up a statement about their conversation. He was the OSBI agent. Not a single word of the statement included how many times he denied his involvement. It was only this quote-unquote dream confession, once again. So the rest of what happened is even lengthier and quite obvious. Both of the guys lawyered up, nobody local wanting them. The second witness was Glenn Gore, who changed his story for the third or fourth time now. We lose track. Glenn Gore was actually at the preliminary hearing, but he was not brought in for either of the trials. It was just his affidavit used from the preliminary hearing and read it in court. Newest version of the story, he said that Debbie asked him to save her because Ron was there at the coach light and was pestering her. Uh-huh. Gore said he told the police about this on December 8th, but their report doesn't mention Ron, and it wasn't given to the defense. This is Glenn Gore, broke into his ex-wife's house, held her and his own daughter hostage for five hours at gunpoint. He shot Rick Carson in the face, but the injuries weren't serious. He was in prison for this. He was serving 40 years for this. So in 1986, when they were getting divorced, he had broken into her house and stabbed her. Now this is the problem. He had stabbed her repeatedly with a butcher knife. He got charged with assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, which begs the question, how was that not attempted murder? Yeah, it is. Uh, how does that translate to assault and battery? Nope. nope. Ring nope. that bell? I don't get it. I'm calling nope. So in 1981, he had been charged for forcibly entering the home of another woman, but we're going to bring him in as a witness, a credible and viable witness. Uh, when Gore signed and he signed an affidavit in prison admitting he sold drugs in Ada in the nearly 19 in the early 1980s and received favorable treatment from the police because he was involved in drug transactions with them. Yeah. The good boy treatment stopped when he stopped selling drugs to them said in 2001 that he didn't know if Ron was at the coach light the night of the murder. When he was shown a lineup back then, it was directly suggested that he point out Ron Williamson. The crime scene specialist, Jerry Peters, was on the stand and said that of the 25 fingerprints found at Debbie's place, none belonged to Fritz or Williamson. Enter Terry Holland. Again with Terry Holland. First claim she heard Carl Fontenot admitting everything about the Denise Haraway kidnapping and murder. After she testified, she was given a light sentence on fraudulent check charges, even though she had two prior felonies. Warden Fontenot went to death row and she fled the county. I, I do want to say something about that. So they did a an interview uh, in the Netflix the innocent man. They did an interview with her little man friend, the, the one that she got off. He was like going to get 40 years and she eventually married him and all this stuff. So eventually her husband. Anyway, they did an interview with him and he confessed that she fled the county because the police, the Ada police told her to flee the county. Mm -hmm. There's a statement from Chris Ross, who was the assistant district attorney at the time about Terry Holland. He says... And I quote, she had a sweet C spot going on to clarify that if they needed a confession, she was the one to go to because she had a C spot or a way with confessions. So they knew that they could get whatever they wanted to out of Terry. Later, Terry claimed that she had been abused by jailers and officers. They would videotape it. And she was afraid that 
those videos would get out. Supposedly, Bill Peterson kept those videos in his office. I don't know if that's true or not. She claims to have had a lot of crap on her that they basically blackmailed her into these confessions. So when the police found her and brought her back, she was facing more charges and fines. And suddenly she had some astounding news for the investigators. Oh, yeah. She also heard Ron Williamson make a full confession. So here we are, two dream confessions and the same woman hearing both of these men confess. What are the odds? Ron was sick of all the back and forth and being harassed. He was so sick of it that he didn't even want to be present for the preliminary trial he basically just gave up they wouldn't listen to him he repeated over and over that he didn't want to be there he had absolutely nothing to do with it at one point he looked right at gary rogers and he said gary you scare me he's like Mm. you can charge me with this after harassing me for four and a half years go ahead i am clearly not in control or in charge here y'all are gonna do whatever you want to do no matter what i say yeah and he'd already figured it out. Why sit there and waste your time hearing all these lies about yourself, you know? Because all you're going to want to do is yell. Yeah. yeah. And at the trial, they, they did produce so-called evidence. They had, other than these these snitch confessions or whatever, they apparently had two pubic hairs and two head hairs on both Ron and Dennis Fritz, which we both know how that goes with the hair comparisons, so... <laughs> yeah, those are the ones I brought up earlier that they'd taken from them after they'd in their first questioning and all that. And of Blech. course, they're like, happy to oblige. I didn't mm-hmm. do anything. Yeah. He waves the, by doing this, by saying he doesn't want to be there, it waves his right to confront his witnesses. And he had an attorney named Barney Ward, precious, precious man, who he thought Gore should have been under all this scrutiny. So he called. Ten witnesses to the stand, all jailers or formal, former trustees, and not a single one recalled hearing anything remotely close to what Terry Holland claimed to have heard. I would like to also mention that Mr. Ward was blind, so the evidence he had to have described to him by his assistant, Linda. And it never made sense to him how this crime scene was all over the apartment, yet nobody could find a single print that belonged to either of these men. Ron was awarded disability by a Judge O'Brien. His sister, Annette, applied for the benefits on his behalf, like from Social Security. Yeah. He was classified as having atypical bipolar disorder, probably borderline, paranoid, and antisocial. Without medications, he was belligerent, abusive, physically violent, has delusions, and a thought disorder. So he could see Ron's problems, yet Judges Miller and Jones still thought he was fit to stand trial. Those are the judges he'd later, him and Dennis, would face. Let's see, a 22-year-old named James Harjo, who was the delegated snitch for Dennis Fritz, they shared a cell. Okay. Of course, he made up a bunch of bulls, including but not limited to Fritz saying he and Ron took beer over to Debbie's house, murdered her, and wiped away all their fingerprints what? and left. So the entire house is a wreck. There are multiple messages, including on her body, but they wiped away all their fingerprints. What? Later, this man, he admitted he didn't know the meaning of the word perjury. Mm. So the experts in blood, saliva, sweat, DNA, etc., and the hair follicle comparisons were both majorly proven to be an overreach. 
but the facts left the simpleton jury behind because they had no clue what any of these words mean. Yeah. If I say the word non-secreter right now, how many of you know what I'm talking about off the top of your head? Probably not a lot. Jury, just an average citizen Joe Schmo. Well... And it's their freaking responsibility to explain that stuff to the jury. And I think that they wanted it to work in their favor, the prosecution at least, that they didn't understand what that meant. Yeah, they're jargon, 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 jargon. Yeah. I'm not saying dumb it down, but layman's terms. Yeah. Explain it. Someone's life is on the line. The expert who got on the trial to, like, verify this, who it matched to or whatever, actually didn't say it correctly i think he misspoke at one point only only like 20 percent of the population are non-secretors and secretor means like your your sweat your saliva is going to leave behind dna evidence not everyone leaves dna behind with that so that leaves 80 percent of the population that does leave dna behind The analyst who tested semen evidence from the crime scene testified that he did not detect blood group substances, Okay, meaning the result was consistent with the non-secretor. But however, Fritz, Williamson, and the victim were all non-secretors. Then the analyst testified incorrectly that this result meant that the perpetrator was also a non-secretor instead of a secretor. And that wasn't true. The perpetrator was a secretor. So even the expert on the stand got it wrong. And then he said that, uh, oh, well, I get it probably doesn't matter anyway, because um, Debbie's blood was probably masking, quote unquote, masking the perpetrator's blood. So all that was like highly misleading and the jury probably didn't understand a word of it. Exactly. At this point, I'm sure you can tell where I'm going with this. The prosecution is grabbing at straws. But after many witnesses and plenty of back and forths, Dennis Fritz was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Bill Peterson pointed at him and said that he and Ron deserved to die for what they did to Debbie. I remember that. I remember him doing that. Which again, he said he did not. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It makes you want to throw up. Like, there's so much. He's just spitting malice. Like, okay, even if, let's just say this were literally any other trial where we know for sure that the guy did it. Even if that's true, that is so unprofessional of a district attorney. Like, I mean, it's not your thing to judge. You're not jury. You're there to do one job. Just leave it at that. Anyway. So we're going to go on to Ron's trial. When Terry Holland testified against Ron Williamson, she said she heard him telling people in the jail that he'd stuck a Coke bottle up her ass and her panties down her throat. Mm -hmm. That was a direct quote, by the way. Yeah. The evidence they fed her was botched a little bit, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Raven said earlier what kind of bottle it was and what was in her mouth. It was not Coke and panties. Yeah. It was ketchup and a washcloth. Yeah. Ron was there for this, and he loudly argued with her. They bantered back and forth, called her a liar. Oh, yeah. The prosecution was leading her into her answers, and Barney was objecting the way that the prosecutor was feeding Holland the answers. Was it like leading? Leading the witness. The court was trying to calmly settle everyone down. They wound up having to take a break. Yeah. They then called another, another informant, Cindy McIntosh, to the stand. Okay. Another check fraud extraordinaire. She couldn't even remember what story she was supposed to tell and drew a blank. 
Or perhaps she actually had a conscience lying dormant in there somewhere that woke up and was like, hey, let's not put a guy on death row. If I'm on the jury and nobody outside of a jail cell has any information linking these two men to this woman, I will drag this out until kingdom come. Yeah. There's just no way. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, don't you start to just kind of tilt your head and squint your eyes a little bit at that thought? You that would think. Every one of these people is in a jumpsuit. Yeah, you would think. Why is that? Yeah. So since these are two different men on two different trials with two different records, they went through the same dog and pony show as the Fritz trial. If you're ever called to jury duty, please be aware that having a history of DUIs and PIs and check forgery doesn't make you a murderer. Being a murderer doesn't make you a thief. Selling drugs doesn't make you a rapist. You know, don't bunch this all together. Like, oh, he did three marijuanas back in 1977. <laughs> He's definitely a rapist and a murderer. Yeah. Our justice system is not based on guilty until proven innocent. It is the other way around. There was another witness in his in that testified in his case. So mm -hmm. he... There were several and I've skipped a bunch. So if there's anything of importance to yeah. you... Well, like, I feel like yeah. this one is kind of... Uh, this witness's name was Andrea Hardcastle. She mm -hmm. was really good friends with Dennis Smith's daughter. And she had testified that Ron Williamson had threatened her before, had raped her and threatened to kill her. So I'm assuming that the prosecution just really needed to set up the fact that this guy was violent and could kill. Yeah, and they saved her for last, of course. We don't know if her testimony is true or it's not because she never reported it. She never like she never went to the police after any of this happened and went, hey, this is what happened. Please, you know, none of that ever happened. The only time that they ever heard anything about it was when she was on the stand. I'm not saying that she made it up. I will not say that. However, I think that she was used in this case to the benefit of the prosecution. And the jury took less than two hours to come back with the death penalty. And I, I said because Peterson had a woman testify whom Moran had assaulted in 1981. He was wearing a horse head ring when he did that, even though she didn't press charges. So we have no idea what the marks looked like that were left from the ring. And apparently Peterson decided during her testimony that the same marks were left on Debbie, even though there was no such evidence. But let's be honest, it wasn't necessary. Yeah, no. Judge Jones called a hearing the following day about the state's Brady violation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because the cops and Peterson had deliberately withheld the videotape of Ron's polygraph interrogation. He ruled that the suppression of the tape by the authorities wasn't a Brady violation after all because the tape wasn't hidden per se. It was just handed over after the trial. How is that not a Brady violation? How? It gets worse. So Ron Williams was sent to F Cell House. And if you've lived in Oklahoma very long, you likely know that name. It's Death Row at Big Mac. Mm -hmm. And also, if you're not from Oklahoma or you've never lived in Oklahoma, Big Mac is the state prison in McAllister. Mm -hmm. They have a prison rodeo and death row inmates. Yeah. So that place in Lexington, do not pick up hitchhikers anywhere around there. Bad people. Let's see. He didn't, he didn't know it at first, but two other casualties of the Pontotoc County judicial system were also there when he arrived. Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot were both there. They had been there almost three years waiting for their appeals to go through the courts. Tommy, when Ron got there, uh, Tommy sent Ron a note and just said hi and wished him well. Ron had always believed Tommy and Carl were innocent and had thought of them often during this ordeal. 
Ron Williamson was set to be executed on July 18, 1988, at 12.02 a.m. at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. His sister got the letter about two months after he arrived at the prison, but appeals are automatic in capital cases. So that's that proce- that slow process was underway. Yeah. He got a lawyer out of Norman named Mark Barrett, who believed his client was innocent. Like he would sit down and talk with him. You know, they would talk about religion. They would, t- it's like he really invested his time in getting to know who Ron Williamson was. Yeah. Many years, many appeals. I won't bore you with all the dates. It's the same sad song and dance over and over. You know, like yeah. appeal this, no to that, appeal this, no to that, appeal, maybe, nah, you know, just left and right. That's all, that's all that happens. I do want to throw in the fact that at one point, uh, Ron Williamson had a psychologist go in and meet with him. And I only wanted to throw this in because it's so similar to the last case that we did. So the psychologist went in and talked to him and the psychologist ended up saying, oh, well, Ron had have all has, has these thoughts and he had dreams and all this stuff. And so he literally dismissed all of that as an alter ego of Williamson. Now, if you'll remember the closing statements of Bill Peterson in the last case were that Tommy Ward actually did all this. It was his alter ego. Titsworth was his alter ego doing all this at the time. I just think there's so much things that correlate to each other. It's just insane. January 26th and 27th, 1999. Mm-hmm. At Laboratory Corporation of America. We in the industry call it LabCorp. It's easier to just call it <laughs> LabCorp. The semen samples from the crime scene, the torn panties, the bed sheets, and the vaginal swabs were tested against the DNA profiles of Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz. A DNA expert had been hired by Ron and Dennis's attorneys. Two days later, Judge Landreth delivered the news that the DNA test excluded Ron and Dennis. Mark Barrett filed a motion to dismiss the charges. Bill Peterson wanted further testing on the hair. He was convinced the newer technology of DNA samples from the hair follicles would prove they were the murderers. Peterson agreed to their dismissal if the hair came back to not be a match. So on February 10th, Mark Barrett and a Sarah something something, I'm assuming it was like a helper, an associate, whatever. Yeah. They drove to Lexington, drove to Lexington to the prison to see Glenn Gore. Remember, he's serving out a 40-year sentence. He told Barrett he'd been expecting a visit. You know, Barrett's like, what? Why? He said Peterson had threatened him if he didn't help nail Ron and Dennis. Gore was asked for a saliva, saliva sample by the lawyers. And he said, it's not necessary. The state already has one. And Barrett asked if Gore's DNA, he asked Gore, he was like, so did, you know, were you around her? Did you have sex with her? Blah, 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 blah. And he's like, no, no, no. And he's like, he asked, like, could your DNA be on her? And he said, probably because he danced with her like five times. (laughs) And Barrett's like, "Uh, dancing won't do it. And he's like, I'm just letting you know. He said, I want you to know they have DNA from the semen. And instantly Gore called time. He's like, I'm done talking. He panicked. He wanted to be taken away. Of course. Barrett told him, if you had sex with her, the semen will match your DNA. And he clammed up. They called OSBI that afternoon and suggested that they find Gore's DNA in the databank 
and compare it with the semen samples from the crime scene. They made the call. On April 15th, the men were brought into the courthouse in handcuffs for the last time. Dennis Smith and Gary Rogers were somewhere else. Imagine that. They did not come Mm. to this. Ron and Dennis got their cuffs taken off for the last time. They sat behind their lawyers. They brought in a witness to state and confirm that none of the evidence collected matching matched Ron or Dennis, which they knew the whole damn time. And by the way, they used five different labs for this. It wasn't just LabCorp. Confirm it five times. Exactly. <laughs> they were thorough because because of the issues and the many different DNA examples, da 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 and the problem between defense and prosecution. So yeah. the testing revealed two of the hairs had been left behind by dun 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 Glenn Gore. Also, the source of the semen, tell him Glenn Gore. Glenn Gore. Peterson claims the evidence they had at the time pointing to Ron and Dennis was overwhelming. Yeah. There was no apology, no admission of errors. I think everyone saw that coming. They spent, what, 12 years of their lives in prison. They were nearly executed. Not even an apology. Judge Landreth asked the men to stand. I love Judge Landreth. This is what he said. He said, and I quote, What you see today and what's occurred over the last several months was what I truly believe is a non-adversarial search for what the truth really is in this case. We use today's science and today's technology to right a wrong, and we cannot replace the 12 years that the defendants have been incarcerated, nor can we forget Debbie Carter. All we can do is go forward from today, but what this day really is, is a day of freedom. Mic drop. They released them like right then and there. Ron bolted outside for a cigarette (laughs) and he came back and the men joined their families. For Debbie's family, they were basically back at square one. I put another judge's note in there that was a district court judge, Mm -hmm. Frank C. And it was during his decision to grant a new trial. And he said, God help us if ever in this great country... We turn our heads while those who have not had fair trials are executed. That almost happened in this case. When Gore found out that he was a suspect, so he was he was working in uh, he was in prison. <laughs> he was working in the prison's work release program. He just was like, "Oh crap!" and like straight up stole a police officer's vehicle and escaped. So he hid. He was the last person seen with Carter, right? And despite being interviewed by the police that night after her death. They never bothered to take his fingerprints, his saliva, his hair samples, none of that. And when this new trial came up, of course, they usually take most of those things when they book you. So he had right. he had some of those things already like on file. So they kind of already knew. They were like, we know who we're looking for. Fully believe she would have left marks on him during all that mayhem. So I wonder how long after the murder anyone saw him. Like, did he went down there the next day? Like, mm. did... I don't know. Surely, surely you notice if someone that you suspect of doing something like this and making this much of a mess, once again, we're going to bring up, she left marks on him. Yeah. And somebody's ignoring it. I'm not sure how much earlier the windshield wipers event took place because at some point between that event and this event, she became afraid of him. You know, the research that I looked up said that a year prior to to her murder she got into an argument with him at Conowal Lake 
And like a lot of people witnessed them like going at it. And she eventually left with some friends. And then the year, a year before that incident is when the windshield wiper incident occurred. So yeah, like two years for sure. She had been having confrontations with this guy. Yes. And so somewhere in there, she got afraid of him because there's a big difference between a woman who drives all the way to a town 10 minutes away to confront a man about freaking windshield wipers. And yeah. then a woman who calls her friends or wants her friends to come over and stay the night with her because she doesn't feel safe. He has done something. She, and once again, we'll get to this in a little bit. He was probably more dangerous than anybody knew. She knew, I'm sure, you know, apparently, obviously she knew. Basically, they went to the police. It was an informal complaint rather than a formal report. I mean, police are kind of bound by the law in terms of what is a problem and what isn't. But I think maybe after all these years and all these wrong convictions, pause for laughter, they understand the importance of a paper trail. When the new trial for Gore began, the DNA was finally proven to be a match. The jury found him guilty like instantaneously. He was convicted of first-degree murder, basically teetered on the death penalty. The uh, The jury couldn't decide if they wanted to give him the, the death penalty or not. So Landreth was just kind of like, well, I'll give him life without parole. So along with that, I wanted to bring up when Dennis Fritz and, and Ron Williamson were exonerated because of the DNA evidence that pointed directly to Glenn Gore. Later, the reason why Glenn Gore got two trials. I know you probably heard us mention that he had two trials, and I wanted to explain that real quick. If you want to, you can look in Gore versus State. I'm going to read you just a little bit from that and talk about it for just a second. His first trial, they said, we have DNA evidence of you, and that's the reason why Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz were exonerated. Now, because of that, you cannot use in your defense... Anything that implicates Ron Williamson, Dennis Fritz, or Ricky Simmons. Reason being was because they have already been exonerated of it. Therefore, a courthouse found that they had nothing to do with it. Therefore, he could not use their names in his trial. Later, the reason why he got a second trial was because his defense attorney, when he appealed, claimed that because he wasn't able to use Ron Williamson or Dennis Fritz in that trial, it says in Gore versus State, he asserts the ex exclusion of this evidence denied him due process and the right to put on a defense. So they gave him a second trial. In the second trial, they brought up the fact that the evidence must tend to connect such other person with the commission of the crime charged. What they're basically saying is, we need hard evidence that they committed this crime. Again, it says, any testimony tending to show that some other person committed the crime is admissible. Counsels state the rule broader than that, though, and insist that testimony may be introduced tending to show that another person may have committed the crime, and the rule is so stated by some courts. But we think this is not generally or usually held that facts are competent, which have no further effect than to cast a bare suspicion upon another. It is generally conceded that a defendant in a criminal case may, for the purpose of establishing his own innocence, prove such fact as tend to show that another is the guilty party, where the identity of the one committing the crime is a material point in issue. 
One of the prominent rules of evidence is that it must tend to prove the issue. It's not necessary that every fact should bear directly upon the issue, but it becomes admissible if it tends to prove the issue or constitute a link in a chain of proof. The rule excludes all evidence of collateral facts, which are incapable of affording any reasonable presumption or interference as to the principal fact or matter in dispute and the tendency of which is to divert the mind from the point in issue and to excite prejudice or mislead or confuse the jury. So that is straight from Gore versus State. And what basically what that means is you can't just say someone else did it. They're saying you can't just say that. You have to have actual evidence that goes with it. You have to say, well, Joe Blow down the street probably did it because his hair was found at the scene. His fingerprints were found at the scene. His blood was found at the scene. So the reason why Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz were able to get exonerated was because they implicated Glenn Gore, but also had evidence to prove that he was at the scene that night. On the other hand, after their exoneration and Glenn Gore went to trial, he could not use Dennis Fritz and Ron Williamson. That Dennis Fritz and Ron Williamson have already been proven not to have been at the crime. And there were no other links other than so-and-so could have possibly seen him there. All of that is circumstantial. They wanted something that proved that there was another person that had committed this crime and Glenn Gore just had none of that proof. Glenn says that the reason why he believes that they never pointed the finger at him was because he knew a lot of the police officers in Ada. He had also admitted to dealing drugs to them and for them, like as in these police officers would confiscate drugs from other felons and then basically give them to Gore and he would deal them out instead of like being put into evidence. One of these officers who was a police captain, titles included, police captain, public safety manager, and emergency management director, Mr. Jeff Crosby. Oh, it's not time. I'll wait. He said like, this is why they never looked at me. Basically, uh, I was one of their like main men or whatever like I was dealing drugs for them I was doing all these things for them and they were afraid he said they were afraid that if he had been fingered for Debbie Carter's murder then it would have he would have outed these police officers Crosby being one of them Jeff Crosby was part of a lot of these cases more than more than two men have been exonerated and one this last year coming up an exoneration case mm -hmm. from DNA evidence mm -hmm. was a rape case. Mm -hmm. And the man had spent, what, 33, 32, 33 years in prison? Harry Lott. He had spent a decent amount of time in jail for a rape. I really want to say like 30 for a rape. So Perry Lott, convicted of rape in Ada in 1988, he served 30 years before being cleared by DNA in July 2018. Okay. So from what I understand... Jeff Crosby was set to testify yep. on Monday, July the... July 9th, 2018, Perry Lott was exonerated by DNA. July 7th, a hearing was scheduled for that Monday in which Jeff Crosby was supposed to testify. So not like two, three days. Yeah. Jeff Crosby 
takes himself out of this world the weekend before. Like completely out, the good old-fashioned way, with his service weapon. This also was on the verge of the Innocent Man documentary coming out. Yep, it was set to come out in December 2018, actually, so like five months later. Yes, for, they they had made the announcement, because mm-hmm. I remember it felt like we were waiting forever. Everybody was just like on the edge of their seats, like, oh my god, let's watch it. Mm-hmm. The people that I know that worked closely with him say that he had been having some issues. He was paranoid. He thought the FBI was coming. If any of you are listening to this and I'm not saying the right thing, I'm terribly sorry. To the person whom I love very much who was close to him, I'm terribly sorry. He did some awful facts are facts. I'm very sorry, but good God. And the thing, the thing that made me almost the most irate about all of it is that this man will never be able to right any of his wrongs. Mm -hmm. He will, there are so many people who will not get any closure because he is taking these secrets to the grave. And for these two men that got out on exoneration, DNA exoneration, they're pretty much victims and their families are victims. Mm -hmm. And then the victim's family has to start at square one and get all this all over again. And there's, there's so much spite and malice and anger and, and things that when it comes to a murder that brutal, I cannot imagine the hate that would fester inside me just thinking about it and then have to sit there in the room with these two men that you think did this to the person that you love. It would just be this rotting, sinking, disgusting feeling mm-hmm. all the time. And it's not the best for you. It is not good for you to feel that way. And so yeah. the fact that they did all this and pinned it on the wrong people and then you're left going, well, who did do it then? You know? Or knowing who did do it and and never disclosing that information. I mean, um, I, I have a quote here from Doug Parr, who is local counsel for Perry Lott. And Perry Lott, when he was exonerated, apparently he was not the only one who they are looking at to be exonerated that Jeff Crosby and Bill Peterson, all these people were involved with. He says, we discovered there was another unresolved rape case that occurred after Mr. Lott's case, where all the circumstances of that case were extremely close to Mr. Lott's case. And some of the police officers who were involved in the case. Oh, and also a little bit about Bill Peterson. I don't know if you knew this. But Bill Peterson's grandfather, whose name was P.A. Norris, he had been one of the wealthiest men in the entire region. He owned the first national bank on Main Street. He donated the land for the football stadium at the college, which now bears his name, Norris Field. Some of his wealth had been passed along to his grandson, William Norris Peterson. He filed a civil suit against John Grisham in like 2006, seven, but it was dismissed in 2008 because he, he was yeah. trying to hold him liable for saying all these things about him. Like, like you just said, I'm sorry for anybody who knew, who knows these people knew these people, but facts are facts. I know listeners out there who maybe don't know Ada too much. Um, if you wonder how close knit this town is, how everybody knows everybody, uh, I'm going to read you an excerpt from Reddit from a user named Pack of Weenies. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this this guy says, this case has haunted me since it happened in 1984. I was 10 years old. Mrs. Haraway, as we called her at Hayes, was one of the nicest and most soft-spoken people you could ever meet. All of the students oh loved God. her. She was she always graded papers at a table just off the library, and it was hard to not see her there anymore. We also knew Tommy, Carl, and Odell Titsworth. They used to come over to drink beer with my dad, and Odell even did my dad's bulldog tattoo one of those nights. I even grew up, redacted, about three doors down from where Debbie Carter was murdered. My friend also lived where Dennis Fritz was living at the time. It was just around the corner from us. Seeing the innocent man brought back a lot of memories for us. Ada is one of those smaller towns that everyone knows you. I just never realized how much I was entwined in this tragedy until I saw the docuseries. Mm. My bio dad's name appears in John Grisham's book. He's got like two little paragraphs of his own. So my bio dad is in John Grisham's book. That's how closely everyone is so related in freaking Ada. It's insane. In this small town, anybody can say anything at any time, and everybody wants their 15 minutes of fame. So so Bill Peterson is not the DA anymore. However, he was the DA for 28 years, and he had a hand in some of the cases that we have even already talked about. He had a hand in Rachel Woodall. He had a hand in uh, Daniel Furr. So, I mean, well, like I said earlier, he went on 2020. That was literally the last interview he ever did. He refused to do any more interviews ever after that. So Dennis Smith died, who was the lead investigator. He was actually a lead investigator on on a few cases that we've talked about. Um, What, 2006? Um, June 30th, 2006. Sweet Barney Ward died in the summer of 2005. Aw. John Grisham never had the chance to interview him. We want to end this episode. We have thrown so much information at you. I have a letter here. It's a letter to the editor in theadanews.com. It was from John Grisham himself to the editor. And the stamp date on it is October 30th, 2008. So I'm just going to read that real quick because I feel like he has some pretty good points. Please forgive an outsider for meddling in your politics. I wouldn't normally think of doing so. However, I know a lot of the history behind a certain job that's on the November ballot. So he was talking about uh, the DA coming up for re-election. I urge the good folks in the 22nd Judicial District to remember these six innocent men, all from Ada. Ron Williamson, convicted of murder in Ada, 1987, and sentenced to death, exonerated by DNA in 99. An innocent man. Dennis Fritz, convicted of murder in Ada in 1987 and sentenced to life, exonerated by DNA in 1999. An innocent man. Calvin Lee Scott, convicted of murder in 1983 and served 20 years before being exonerated by DNA in 2003. This and and Calvin Lee Scott was the man that was put away by the dog hair, by the way. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Perry Lott, convicted of rape in Ada in 1988, served 30 years before being cleared by DNA in July 2018, an innocent man. Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot 
convicted of rape and murder in Ada in 1985, still serving time. Well, as of now, Carl Fontenot just got out, but both innocent men. Yeah. These six men were wrongfully convicted before the availability of DNA testing. Their alleged crimes were investigated by the same authorities, the same prosecutors, prosecuted by the same district attorney's office. Their fraudulent convictions were obtained by the use of lying jailhouse snitches, junk science, coerced confessions, and eyewitness identifications that were manipulated. Ron Williamson, Dennis Fritz, and Calvin Lee Scott were fully exonerated and received compensation, which uh, Ron and Dennis both got $500,000, just FYI. They sued the city right. of Ada. Yeah. Right. The taxpayers of Ada paid for some of those damages. Perry Lott served 30 years and was released last July in the face of overwhelming DNA evidence. However, the current district attorney, Paul Smith, refused to acknowledge this. Perry was forced to enter a bogus guilty plea just to get out of prison. He will not be compensated for Tommy Ward and Carl Fontenot. Fontenot just got out, but for Ward, the clock is still ticking after 33 years. In the case, the crime scene investigations were bungled so badly that the real killers may never be found. He says Ada ranks as one of the worst places in the country for wrongful convictions per capita. It's time to stop convicting innocent people. The 22nd has not had a district attorney election for 28 years. It's time to start cleaning up the mess by bringing some in integrity to the office. Sincerely, John Grisham, Oxford, Mississippi, author of The Innocent Man. We wanted to talk to you about The Innocence Project. And The Innocence Project, it was a huge part in well, even in Carl Fontenot's case. And all of those people that we mentioned in that letter to the editor, all of them have been taken under the wing of the Innocence Project. The Innocence Project was founded in 1992 by Peter Nofield and Barry Sheck. And in the Netflix documentary, you can actually see them kind of being interviewed here and there. Um, so what they do is they try to exonerate wrongfully convicted people through DNA testing. And most of the time, they provide funding to these people who either don't have lawyers. They'll provide them lawyers or funding to get a lawyer. People who need DNA testing to try to exonerate themselves, they provide the funding to do those DNA tests. And like they have really helped out. I, I believe that it was due to the Innocence Project that Carl Fontenot eventually got out. So if you would like to help, number one, if you want to look into the Innocence Project more, you can go to theinnocenceproject.org. They have a, a way that you can donate. You can either donate like one time, you can donate monthly. Um, they have, you can just like support an exoneree, give your, your time or your money. Just go on their website and, and dig around a little bit. Try to get involved that way. And we we wanted to read you some fun facts uh, because we have talked so much about exonerations and DNA evidence. We wanted to give you some fun facts about exonerations in the United States. 1989, the first DNA exoneration took place. 367 DNA exonerees to date. 37 states where exonerations have been won. 14 is the average number of years served. The total number of years served, 5,097.5. 5. 
Average age at the time of wrongful conviction is 26 and a half years old. The average age at exoneration is 42, almost 43. 21 of 367 people served time on death row. 41 of those 367 people pled guilty to crimes they did not commit. 69% of involved eyewitness misidentification. 42% of these cases were across racial misidentification. 32% of these cases involved multiple misidentifications of the same person. 27 of these cases involved misidentification through the use of a composite sketch. 44% of people involved misapplication of forensic science in their cases. 28% involved false confessions. 49% of the false confessors were 21 years old or younger at the time of arrest. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. 33% of the false confessors were 18 years or younger at the time of arrest. 10% of the false confessors had mental health or mental capacity issues. That was going to be my next yep. question. 17% involved informants. 267 DNA exonerees were compensated. 189 DNA exonerees worked on by the Innocence Project alone. 162 actual assailants identified. Those actual perpetrators went on to be convicted of 152 additional violent crimes, including 82 sexual assaults, 35 murders, and 35 other violent crimes, while the innocent sat behind bars for their earlier offenses. 130 DNA exonerees were wrongfully convicted for murders. 40 of them involved eyewitness misidentifications, and 81 of them, which is 62%, involved false confessions as of July 9th, 2018. 102 DNA exonerations involved false confessions. The real perp was identified in 76 of these cases. These 38 real perps went on to commit 48 additional crimes for which they were convicted, including 25 murders, 14 rapes, and nine other violent crimes as of July 24th, 2018. 180 of the DNA exonerees, which is 50%, had the real perpetrators identified in their cases. 137 of the DNA exonerees had the real perpetrators identified through a cold database. So how does DNA make a difference in the criminal justice system? Well, since 1989, there have been tens of thousands of cases where prime suspects were identified and pursued until DNA testing, prior to conviction, proved that they were wrongfully accused. In more than 25% of cases in a National Institute of Justice study, suspects were excluded once DNA testing was conducted during the criminal investigation. The study conducted in 1995 included 10,060 cases where testing was performed by FBI labs. An innocent project review of our closed cases from 2004 to 2015 revealed that 29% of cases were closed because of lost or destroyed evidence. Bye! Bye! You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? 
That's our outro, isn't it? <laughs>